So this week's conversation is quite unique. I get to participate in a roundtable conversation with John Favreau, you know, the creative force behind Iron Man films, uh, Jungle Book, The Lion King, The Bubba Fett and Mandalorian series, and much more. Along with some other creative people behind this new series, prehistoric planet, like Mike Gunton, Tim Walker, and paleologist Darren Nayish. Take a listen to the conversation. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. So this is such a fascinating series and much different than some of the other work you've done. What what inspired you to make this series and what was your biggest goals with it? Mike Mike should jump in on that. Okay. One. Well, I think the, the inspiration started actually about 10 years ago. It's had kind of two phases. The initial inspiration actually was standing on a mountainside in Africa with Sir David Attenborough and he was introducing a series we were making called about Africa and he said nowhere on earth does wildlife put on a greater show. Those were his lines. And I remember saying, thank you, that's it, wrap, we've got that. And I sat there thinking, I wonder if that's always been true. I wonder if there was a time when that was not the case. When would the most extraordinary time have been? And I reckoned the time of the dinosaurs, when they were walking across that mountain, that would have been the most extraordinary time when wildlife put on its greatest show. So I thought, could you get everybody stood on that mountainside, including Sir David, the crew, all the directors, all the experts, all the camera kit, stick it in a time machine, go back to the time of the dinosaurs and make a wildlife film that showed them doing that. And that was bubbling away in my mind for a number of years. And then 
about four years ago, it started to all come together. We all met, and I met I met John in uh, Jay Hunt's office in for App in Apple, and we got we started talking about lions actually, and we obviously was a kind of meeting of minds, and we thought then actually now we can build that time machine. We now can get everybody in that machine and go and do the show, and that's what we've done. That's prehistoric planet. This project took a long time to develop. Um, following up on on what you were saying. For the science experts on the program, based on a lifetime of work in the field before this program was even uh, on the radar. So for you, what was the biggest surprise you learned during the actual making of this project? Something that blew you away, something that you had never considered in all the years leading up to this moment? Well, I I came, you know, remember, we're coming from two different worlds, this team. You you have... um, the, this team has worked on, uh, the, other than me, they've worked on all, all those uh, planet Earth uh, documentaries, all of these really uh, rich, scientific, entertaining, uh, long-form cinematic, uh, n- new style of, of documentary that was such an inspiration for the team that I've been working with. We're more the CGI tech team. When we were working on Lion King and Jungle Book, we were looking at these documentaries and trying to emulate what they were able to do. So there was a big, uh, a big learning curve where the group of people I've worked with had to learn how documentaries are made and the documentary teams had to learn how, how uh, to use technology to help create the magic trick of making it seem like it was happening and unfolding before your eyes. So I would say I, I probably learned the most uh, because I had no background in any of this. And so it was, uh, it's been about two or three years and, and the, the gentleman sitting over there, uh, Darren Nash, he's a paleontologist and he'd be on all the calls with us. And so between Tim and Mike and Darren, and then we would have, you know, remote teams from all over the world on our calls. And I, I got to learn a lot about, not just about dinosaurs, but about uh, biomes, about the way that the world developed. I was part of what made this such a fun project for me is it is I got to get a front row seat to the state of the art technology uh, as related to how how the cinematic approach to how we shot the plates, but also a front row seat for the for the latest paleontology, uh, paleontological, am I saying that right? Paleontological uh, research because it's we're I didn't realize this, but we're living in a, in a golden age of dinosaurs where there's new discoveries made uh, uh, on, on a monthly basis. And each one of those discoveries cascades down throughout our understanding of what the ancient world was like and how, how life developed on this planet. So to me, I have a very, uh, very grateful for the, for, the, uh, for, for the rich education I was able to get from, from our, uh, uh, the, the leaders of these fields. John, Prehistoric Planet combines the state of art technology from the entertainment industry and expert knowledge from scholars to bring this unique view of dinosaurs and their time on Earth. While making this series, what has the entertainment side of production learned from Darren Nash and, and vice versa? I don't know who wants to take that. I could be, I could be a John Favreau. When they, say your, when they say your name in it, though, I think you get to talk. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say first, you know, one of the things that we... We have been absolutely delighted to to bring together is John, Mike, and Darren to bring this collaboration of science, CGI, and and real world filmmaking. And and some of the interpretation of the fossil record has changed so much over the last thirty years. And that's what we've been trying to bring to the 
going to the series. So there'll be a big surprise, not just for us as filmmakers, but for the viewers. They'll start to see dinosaurs depicted in a brand new way, like we've never seen before, either on the big or the small screen, and doing behaviors that we've never seen before. And that's all through this collaborative nature of the project with Darren guiding the science, John guiding the CGI, and Mike guiding the, the wonderful world of the filmmaking. I, mean, I should think the other thing I should have said in that in that journey to making this, there was another really important point, which is why now? And that is because the scientific world was also going through a bit of a change, which Darren can talk about, and he's very much part of it, which is that rather than just looking at the fossils and these animals as bones and sort of dead things, they were starting to think about them as living, breathing creatures who behaved. And of course, as wildlife filmmakers, that's what we do. We film animals, animal behavior, what their lives, the, the challenges they face, the struggles they face. And we wanted to, we wanted to introduce that sense into this, these programs. And we needed the veracity to do it. We needed the science to back that. And this change in the thinking about scientists, so they start to think about animal, animal behavior, dinosaur behavior, that allowed us to do this. And so that was the final alignment of the stars that allowed us to proceed with this sense of accuracy and authenticity. Prehistoric Planet premieres on Apple TV+. Plus. It's a, it's a week-long event that starts on Monday, May 23rd, and it's visually absolutely stunning. What were the keys to making this series look so incredible and, and look like footage of, of real living animals instead of, you know, creatures that died um, so long ago? Well, I, I think what <clears throat> the reason we came together was that um, was that we had, you know, the, the remember, there's a whole there's a, there's hundreds of people who worked on this that are not being represented on this call. We're just the tip of the iceberg. Right. So you have artists from around the world, and I was very fortunate to be collaborating with an effects house called MPC, uh, who uh, on, I, I, I started working with them on, on Jungle Book and, and then later on Lion, Lion King. We developed a, a set of cinematic tools that allowed us to uh, emulate what it would be like to really film real animals using real camera equipment. And that was translated to a, you know, you hear people talking about the metaverse. It's, I guess, technically it would be that. On Lion King, we never even left, uh, we never left the, the studio. And we were able to render all of these images and create it in a photorealistic way, thanks to all of the <clears throat> groundbreaking technology that's happening in that space, with ray tracing, with, um, with all sorts of um, uh, sims for fur for uh, particulate, things that sound boring in a, in, a, in a conference call, but but that are really exciting and interesting when you see them unfold. And all of those little innovations uh, that we had developed for that, I was able to plug this team in with that team. And as we collaborated together and I, and I was hopefully able to shepherd people who had never really worked in the visual effects space, um, like our, our documentary side of the, uh, of the team, into this so that now after two, three years, they're all experts in this area and hopefully I'm coming up to speed on documentaries. And so we really were able to plug into a team that had been building over many, many, many years and using research that we had developed for other projects. And to me, this was uh, the pinnacle of the application of it because instead of having animals that were doing scenes together or singing together here, we were actually trying to fool the audience into believing that they had a privileged view into the past to be able to be a fly on the wall uh, as as these creatures just behaved in a naturalistic way. 
And, um, and the reaction so far is really promising because people seem to be, uh, the technology seems to disappear. And that's the goal, right? The goal is to make it look like we just had a camera, we went back there, and this should sit alongside of the body of work that these gentlemen have done in the past. And I think it really feels like uh, a continuation of that into, uh, into a, a, another world. I think part of that is also the grammar. As what John was saying, the learning between us, the grammar of how you shoot a documentary, a wildlife documentary is very specific. You, you know, we only ever have one camera usually when we're on location and you can only put that camera in certain positions. So we, re we, we reflect or replicated those constraints ourselves because obviously in a CGI world, you can put a camera anywhere, but, you, but in the real world, you can't. So if you're going to be authentic about as if you are actually filming these animals for real, you have to replicate that. So, you know, there are shots which are impossible, which you can't do, but we, so we didn't do them. But so when you see that, I think that when you see what we, the, the, the images on in this show, they feel as if they were filmed by real people in real world environments. So you can't get a shot up a T-Rex's nose because you get, if you tried to do that, the T-Rex would eat you. So you have to be, the camera has to be a long way away on the telephoto lens, all those sorts of things. And that's because we're wildlife filmmakers. We spent 30 years doing that. So we know those, those are the kind and, of rules. And by the way, they did, unlike Lion King, they actually did go out in the field. And yeah, they actually yeah. did go to these environments. And Tim, yeah. you want to speak to that? That's Yeah, I mean, we, we, we took the expertise of the workflow that, that John had established with our colleagues, Andy Jones and Adam Valdez. And then we married it with the sensibilities of the BBC's Natural History Unit. And, and went out into the field to film amazing locations to give the cinematic grandeur that is part of the grammar of blue chip wildlife filmmaking. So we've got the most amazing dinosaurs, we've got fabulous storytelling, and we've got the earth as you'd showcase it in any other blue chip wildlife documentary. It's just that it's got dinosaurs in. So just curious, why the Cretaceous period uh, for this docuseries? Oh, D Darren, I think you got your question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, we, we essentially chose the very last part of the late Cretaceous, a particular chunk of Cretaceous time called the Maastrichtian, partly because it's got this superstar cast of phenomenally interesting dinosaurs that are, you know, household names, Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops are from this section of time. But because it's the youngest part of not just the Cretaceous, but of the whole so-called age of dinosaurs, the Mesozoic era. It's also the bit for which we have the most amount of information because it's the youngest bit. It's the bit that's best preserved in the fossil record. So we don't just have Tyrannosaurus rex, for example, is a comparatively well-known dinosaur. There's over 40 specimens. Most fossil dinosaurs are only known from one or two specimens. You don't just have the animals themselves well-represented, but their environments are better known. The animals and plants that they lived with are better known. So if you want to portray behavior realistically, if you want to portray real environments realistically, as we've done, you kind of have to start with the Maastrichtian. So that's our main justification for it. Following up on that, to what degree were paleologists and dinosaur specialists involved in this project? The, to my knowledge, no, not to my knowledge. I'm going to restate that. It's a fact. <laughs> this is the first time a TV series or a movie involving prehistoric life has had a full-time live-in technically qualified paleontologist. I am an expert in dinosaurs and other animals of the time. I've worked on marine reptiles and pterosaurs that lived at the same time as dinosaurs. Ordinarily, experts are consulted kind of on an ad hoc basis. They're used here and there. I had very deep involvement in all appropriate steps of this project. I think that really has made quite the difference. I think it was important to have that involvement. And as a consequence, you're seeing 
as best as possible and up to the minute cutting edge portrayal of our scientific understanding of these animals for the first time ever. And, and, and when Darren says he was embedded in the team, he was literally in the office. We shared an office for the last three and a half years. Um, we, we also worked with paleoclimatologists, paleobotanists, and a whole range of different experts to facilitate our interpretation of the minutiae of the stories. Um, and, and, and as well, Darren's been quite modest because virtually every aspect of each storyline goes through his incredible brain and then every tuesday we have dr darren's dino download in which he gives the full team a rundown of what's going on in the paleo world in the last seven days to keep us all on our toes and and, and i would also go further to say that he, he's not a consultant that we go to occasionally um if he ever had issue with anything we were doing we would change it like he had full veto power over what we were doing. We 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 really, oh no, Mike, Mike. Yeah, I'm joking. <laughs> but there's of course nothing. he did. But I know, like I've worked on space movies, and and you always have um, you know, when I, as an actor, and and you always have consultants around that will help inform the story. But everybody knows that that should take a backseat to the Hollywood storytelling, and you know, there's certain you're allowed to cut certain corners <clears throat> when you're making a story that has a technical aspect to it. This one, we went the other way. We said, what's the technical justification of it and how can we build stories on top of that? Much like if you'd find these creatures in the wild, you'd have to work around what they were really doing and then find a way through the edit editorial process and the choice of the cinematic choices you make, you bring those stories to life. And so that's another thing that we're doing that emulates the documentary workflow which is completely different than uh, telling an narrative story from scratch or an animation. I, I don't know whether we're going to talk about Sir David Attenborough later at some point, but one of the things about the scale of the scientific research, it was, it was like a pyramid of, so what, or an iceberg. What we're seeing in the shows is this tiny little tip. And I, went, I had to go and, go and see David to, to tell him about the series. And, I, and, I, and he said, oh, come and tell me some of the stories. So I went up to London to see him uh, and I had to carry a hold all just to, for all the research papers and all the data that we had just for, well, two, there were two stories I was telling you about. That's how much information there was to, to justify and to in, inform us on the decisions we made. And well, I, I, would I actually... think that's, that's part of why I think he became involved is, is was, uh, you, know, you know, because he's, he's a, you know, he's not just a, a, a voiceover a performer, <laughs> you know, he's, <laughs> he's invested in this community and he is, wants to present the message of science to the next generation. And, um, and certainly he's a, he's a man who has a big enough body of work and has done enough that, you know, he, you know, we were very grateful that he was able to contribute to this because it, uh, just honestly hearing his voice over it, uh, helps it fit within the pantheon of other scientific content that's out there that uh, speaks to a certain level of uh, uh, authenticity for us. And so when he agreed to, to be, become a part of this after seeing what we were up to, it, it made me feel like we were really on the right track. It, truly can what I a luxury one, it is. Can I make one yes, final sir. point on this, on this topic, tying all of this together? is that we get asked quite a lot about the paleontological accuracy of the, of the series, which is, which is obviously crucially important. But the key takeaway thing, I think the thing that, you know, that really sells it is our collective experience and expertise when it comes to natural history, animal behavior, 
knowledge of real world animals, real world behaviors, that's been absolutely key. And I think also makes this series pretty different from anything that's been done before. So our knowledge of the living world has also been crucial. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Of course, the Jurassic Park series has reintroduced a lot of dinosaurs that many people weren't familiar with. But of course, notably, uh, we think of the Velociraptor and the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, is, is, is there a particular species of dinosaurs um, that you're most excited about uh, introducing to viewers? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I think we've probably all got our own favorites, but the way we chose them was, as, as Darren was saying, you know, we looked at the period of time we were going to feature and the, the dinosaurs and the other animals that were present in that period. And that gave us our cast of characters. So ranging from T-Rex and Triceratops, the very famous ones, Velociraptor, and then a whole, a whole host of other dinosaurs. Excuse us a minute. There's a notification on the on uh, on our Apple products. <laughs> there's a there's a T well. Rex approaching. It's coming close. Yeah, it's coming close. <laughs> and, and, uh, I think that's one of the beauties of the of the series is that we showcase some really new dinosaurs for a lot of people. One of my favourites is uh, Dinochirus, and it's a ginormous thing. It's the size of a T Rex. It's got massive claws, you know, this long. It's got a great big duck bill. It's covered in feathers. And we show it doing a really cute bit of behavior, the kind of thing that you see animals do for real when you spend a lot of time with them out in the field. I think it's also worth... Do you want to talk about No, it? no, please. I, I think another thing that's worth mentioning is that, again, this idea that it's... We're, we're 
echoing the form of a planet Earth. I mean, this is really planet Earth 66, set 66 million years ago. And, and that means the format has a similarity. So we did it by habitat. So each episode looks at a different habitat of that time. And so part of the choice of the animals is as it would be when we do planet Earth. You look for the animals that most represent the challenges that those environments uh, provide. But also, you, you also have a little bit of a matrix. You look for the, the, you know, the big powerful one. You look for the hunting story. You look for the, the mating sequence. You look for the slightly comedic one, because animals are always funny. And I'm, they're funny today. And I'm sure they were funny 66 million years ago. So there's quite a, it's quite a, 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 a comp quite a detailed tapestry that you try and weave of different things, because we're also trying to show, and one of our, one of our ambitions was, this was an incredibly rich time on the, in the Earth's history. There were more, you know, the number of species, the number of animals was enormous. It was, it was a golden age of animals, which is what I said at the beginning. Nature put on its greatest show 66 million years ago. The, uh, I, I like the uh, Pachyrhinosaurus and the uh, Nanosaurus the, in the, in the, in the cold with, uh, and you see more f interesting feathered pattern. Uh, I guess it was part of uh, surviving the, the cold biomes, but I had never understood before starting working on this project, how uh, ubiquitous dinosaurs were throughout the entire, in, in every ecosystem. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I thought it was, to me, I love, there's just something really, uh, that offers a different perspective to me when to see the the driving snow and the blizzard and the hunt going on in that environment. I guess I grew up thinking dinosaurs were lived in jungles and ate ferns, and that was really it. I, I, I guess I was still grounded in the old original interpretation of it that slowly evolves. And and what was what was interesting here is that you know this is you know we 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 definitely step into a lot of conjecture as far as what we think their color array was or the feather patterns and we could determine a lot from fossil evidence but you're also looking as i think uh Dar darren was alluding to you're looking at the uh the evolutionary trees to see what the closest relatives were and you look in the real world now to see how these creatures actually behave and how they look and how they're colored and you could make a lot of inferences and I think one of the most interesting parts of it for the people that I've shown give, give kind of sneak peeks to in my living room has been um, the, the accompanying material, which is how did you know this? Why did you make this choice? What makes you think a T-Rex could swim? Why do you, you know, what makes you think uh, the, the, the Carnotaur, uh, the Carnotaurus had, had that these arms were used for, for mating rituals? By the way, Darren, you tell me if I'm getting anything wrong, too. I feel like I'm, <laughs> you're I'm, good. I'm, you're I'm, good. So far, <laughs> I feel like I'm 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 still in class here. But but um, and then we go with each episode. We have accompanying material where we actually show the science behind it. And to me, as somebody who comes from from Hollywood, where you could kind of make up anything and put anything on the screen, uh, to to show that there are underpinnings here and that there was a, a tremendous a lot of, amount of discussion, debate, research. Uh, to so that everything that we show is plausible with the latest science. We you could never know for sure, but everything we present there, we could. Now, this may all change, by the way, in a year, but but right now we could point to everything we're doing and none of it is done for flash. None of it is done for spectacle. Everything is done or, or to be controversial or co contrary to what others have believed. 
this is all set in the science. And, and to me, honestly, that's the part that I really geek out the most on is to be able to talk to Darren and, and Mike and, and, and our experts and ask why we're doing these things. And, and a lot of the conversations spiral off into uh, the science behind it. So to me, it, it just, it, it really has awakened my curiosity. And now I'm, you know, even right, I'm here, I have one of Darren's books. I've been doing my own research here. Uh, I've got one too. And I just, and I, and it, yeah, it, we've got it, it too. We've got it too. <laughs> if in doubt, yeah. look at that book. Dinopedia here, I'll give you a plug, Dinopedia. So this is one of the latest bunch of books and the artists, I think, I'm guessing that your t-shirt there Darren, is that is that some paleo art? Yeah, yeah, this is yes by a friend of mine, uh, Rebecca Groom, and it's a, a a modern view of a feathery dinosaur. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of um, uh, conjecture that dinosaurs may have been even more colorful than even what we're presenting, and and although that looks like a, a, an artistic uh, imaginative product of imagination there are there are many scientists who believe that the that the dinosaurs based on their eye size and how sensitive they would have been to color and their closest relatives in our modern world that they may have been just as colorful in their plumage as as birds are today mm. we yeah. don't really dive that go ahead sorry i was just going to say yeah look at look at the modern world around us now and you know we see crocodilians on one side of, of some of the dinosaurs and 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 birds on the other side and the family tree you look at those animals and some display features are just outlandish if you designed it people would not believe you and uh, and then the accompanying behavior that goes alongside it until it's been filmed it's never been seen and you show it to people from the real world and it's unbelievable now transpose that 66 million years ago and the world would have been just as vibrant with just as vibrant animals it's just that they were in many cases bigger uh, and more exciting in fact well, we following have, up on that oh, oh sorry, what, sorry what i was going to say is in, in truth we've actually been and some of us because darren's also like an octopus got tentacles out in the scientific world and all the other experts of course are involved in this as well and come by Darren and some of them have said actually you've been quite conservative in some of our choices you know we and we, we played I think that's right we played on the more conservative interpretations because that's more likely to be right than the outlandish ones but as Tim said if you look at the what happens in the natural world today there are things that you would never believe until we film it and then show it to you which is one of the joys of making those kind of shows so almost certainly there are things that happened back in the that the, in that time which would blow your mind but of course we we don't know yet well we may one day know but we we don't know quite all of those things yet darren what species in the series involved the boldest most imaginative reconstruction or or the hardest to do based on current evidence that's an excellent question and there's uh, quite a list of, of animals that were a <laughs> challenge a challenge obviously for our animators uh, in order to get it to look you know like a real animal to look realistic but also a challenge for us intellectually are we actually going to go with this or not lots of toing and froing and I would say it's probably the fact that we decided at one point to go with the idea that the giant long-necked sauropod dinosaurs may well have actually used their remarkable necks, not just as structures to you know, increase their reach and give them a bigger sort of range of feeding area, but they might well have used the neck as a display structure. And couple that with the fact that sauropods are one of several dinosaur groups that were pneumatic. They had inflatable air sacs distributed throughout their bodies. This is a thing that's quite unusual to us. You know, we mammals don't have this system. Many dinosaurs do. Birds, which are living dinosaurs, a group of living dinosaurs, 
thirds have these inflatable air sacs as well. So if you have a giant neck that could well be used in display, and if you have this inflatable air sac system, does it mean that some of these animals might have had frigate bird style actual inflatable balloons type structures on their neck? And this is a valid speculation. It's something that is justifiable based on our understanding of the anatomy of these animals. And we decided to go for it in one species. So we show one species of sauropod, the Argentinian dreadnoughtus, like it was mentioned earlier. And we show this animal, males coming together, battling for mating rights, females evaluating the males based on how good their display is. And we show them doing this remarkable display and that is an example of something that is at the fringes of what we're kind of prepared to. <laughs> this is a genuine possibility that this could have been a thing and uh, getting it right was a real challenge. And that's also connected with looking at contemporary animals because they also had these, we believe that the males also fought each other um, because they have these um, thumb, are we calling them thumb spikes? spikes. Yeah. You, you can, yeah, yeah. Thumb, um, on their forelimbs. And again, if you look at contemporary animals, you know that that's, those things often go together. You just have to watch a sage grouse. If you ever see a sage grouse courtship behavior, when they pump out these extraordinary sacks on their chests, you, and you think to yourself, that, that's even more bonkers than a- than You have a, just witnessed, a, this is, a, you are now a fly on the wall of exactly what our, our, our work sessions are like. This is, exactly, <laughs> this is exactly what we talk about for hours and when we're looking at shots and then it, it just spirals into conversations about this. I have to say this has been one of the most enjoyable uh, jobs I've ever had. Uh, look Same. at these smart people yeah. who are, you know, it just, to me, I just, I, I never tire of hearing this and understanding it. I, I remember I'm a person bet between Star Wars and Marvel, you know, so much of my life is, is, is in fantasy and, and in, um, in, in created worlds. And, and that are exciting and fun, and I love I love that. But to be talking about this, about something that really existed, and that there's this whole wealth of remember we've only been on the planet for, you know, we're well shy of a million years as a species, uh, less than probably less than half that, right? Am I getting this yeah. right? Okay. Uh, but but dinosaurs have been around for just this just this period is a hundred million years that we're talking about. I mean, just it's 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 it's. It's humbling to think of how long these animals existed in this web, this harmonic web of coexistence and, and, and food chains and, and how, um, how enduring they were and how slowly they developed. I mean, continents moved and shifted as these, as these creatures existed on the planet. Mm. So when you start to see this whole dance, and, we're, and as you pointed out with one of your questions, this is just a, a small cross-section. Uh, of you know the, the, towards the end of the Cretaceous period, but but it goes deeper, 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 further back, and then post extinction. There's other waves of animals that have you know there've been several extinction patterns, and so there's so many different eras to explore here. And I think that's what's so fun about this project for us is that this is just we're opening up a portal as the research becomes more readily available, but also as what we do technologically. You build, there's Moore's Law, computers are getting so much faster. There are so many great artists who are working and so many people utilizing these technologies that there are innovations in my end of the of the deal too. And so we could take things on. We could have never shown feathered animals like this, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Look at how, you know, Jurassic Park, you know, the first, and still for my money, one of the best utilizations of CGI when Spielberg had originally done it, you know, they were dealing with, um, with with 
uh, scales and, and skin. Uh, and that took everything that they had from a processing perspective. Well, now we can do fur, we can do feathers. So there's so much more that's available to us uh, just, just from a, a feasibility standpoint that really uh, the research and our imaginations are the, are the only limitations now. Why do you feel that it's important to continue to talk about dinosaurs and prehistoric life and to have a series like Prehistoric Planet come out? Why is it so important right now? Oh, picking up on something that John just said about himself being immersed in, in fantasy a lot of the time and in different bodies of his work. I, I think that for a lot of people, dinosaurs are, are, are a bit of a fantasy. You know, that we've, we've grown up with them. They've been around in our psyche for the last 200 years or so. And, uh, and I think that one of the ambitions of the, of the series as a whole is to remove them from fantasy and to embed them into reality by showing them as as coherent living animals that are performing behaviors that we see around us today but 66 million years ago and 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 thus dispelling the myth that they were monsters they weren't monsters they were magnificent i think the other thing is about you're talking more generally about the interest in our planet and in the natural world i think that's that's also growing enormously i've been doing this for over 30 years and i've never been busier in my life making wildlife shows because the people there seems to be a a global appreciation and understanding and interest in both the wonders of the planet but also its fragility and i just another perspective on the planet one that you know is historical but still shows the wonder and how extraordinary this place is that we live on i just think that's another reason why it's the right time to do this we often got quite emotional yeah. whilst we've been making it you know thinking of the magnitude of what we're portraying but it's no longer here in, in that glory you know the, as mike says the fragility of the natural world is on everybody's minds at the moment and and that's it's been a fragile place for a long time and these magnificent creatures are no longer around and when we were depicting them you quite often think what a shame that we can't actually go and see a t-rex for real you know yeah i also think that for just from a completely different perspective um it's so hard as a dad it's so rare and i i, I so appreciate when different generations within the family all want to sit and watch the same thing and the work that Mike and Tim have done that those are some of the you know the memories that that I've had with my family of recent years because my kids are getting older some are off of college you know they're for us to all want to gather around and watch the same screen at the same time is um is something I grew up with and took it took took for granted it's 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 funny to talk about like thinking about tv nostalgically because at the time it felt like that was a disruptor but but thinking back of of everybody sitting around watching the same thing and enjoying it and what really um, what's what's so uh, what I'm what I'm so appreciative for is that this is when we put these images on the screen it seems to cross uh, generations it seems to cross um, it, it seems to travel around the world like there's a there's a common language here because it's it's visual storytelling and it's these animals in their anthropomorphism are relatable because they're going through all of the same things in a much more dramatic way that 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 any species do and that we do so i think that there's um there's something that draws you to looking at images of nature and there's something about dinosaurs inherently 
I don't think it's a coincidence that every time there's a new technology, everybody wants to show dinosaurs. <laughs> first time they did stop motion, the first time CGI, you know, this is this has been something that's been a fascination with um, storytellers and, 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 and humanity since they since the original discovery of dinosaurs before they even knew what dinosaurs were when they were fine before they really even understood the nature of evolution and science when you know they found the first skull and you know and and uh it was the whole story about how napoleon captured this skull because they didn't know what it was am i tell i'm getting out of my i'm getting out of my area <laughs> of expertise now but i i think even back as far as that there was our only context for science at the time was the Bible. Was this a Leviathan? What was this? And then slowly, as people were fascinated more and more with these, with these fossils, that led to innovations in science because the story and the fascination was what helped motivated it. And so I think if this becomes the door that brings people in through the fascination and, and enjoying the storytelling, I think it opens up the next generation to becoming curious about science. And, and I think that that's a very valuable thing to bestow upon the next generation is this curiosity so that the next generation could surpass us, but they have to be drawn to it and you have to show them how exciting it is and how fun it is and how alive it is. Well, speaking of that fascination and curiosity, what is the most surprising fact about dinosaurs or the era they lived in that viewers are gonna learn the most from this series? Um, I can have a go answering that. I, I, I think a key thing about dinosaurs, <clears throat> excuse me, that isn't well appreciated is that <laughs> These weren't bland, boring animals. Uh, yeah, at the traditional view of dinosaurs as these, you know, bland brown or gray things that stood still and just ate stuff all day. That nothing could be further from the truth based on our actual understanding of their fossils. John has already mentioned we've got this excellent reason for thinking from iron brain anatomy and from their living relatives that you know, dinosaurs had excellent color vision. They were very, very visually oriented. But everything about their bodies shows this was true. They're very, they're very flamboyant animals. It repeatedly in dinosaur lineages, different groups, you see them evolving crests and frills and spikes and spines and all these display structures. There isn't a good reason for these structures unless they're involved in, in displays. The animals are adopting specific postures and throwing their arms around and waving their heads from side to side and doing little dances and strange wiggles, conveying information on social and sexual status to other members of their own species and to other species as well. The dinosaur world really would have been very visually interesting. We've already touched on the fact that this is, you know, this is seen today in, in birds, it's seen to a degree in lizards and crocodilians as well. But if you look at the display behavior of say a bird of paradise or prairie chicken or any of these other strange flamboyant birds the extinct dinosaurs were doing all that stuff as well so this was a, a visually spectacular world and i think we convey that very well in our stories i mean they had 175 million years to practice mm. so you know it's this sort of evolution is an extraordinary machine that drives these kinds of things and so it's it's without doubt it's in, it's inevitable that there will be complexity and you just all this wonderful the, some of the new technology, you know, CT scanning inside the, the cranial cavities to see this, how their brains were structured. And we can, we can infer from that all sorts of complexities in their behavior and their sensory systems. So there's, you know, it, it, it's a, there's absolutely no doubt it would have been a crazy, exciting, complex, loud, colorful world. Absolutely. And speaking of the entertainment value of all this, uh, probably be our last question. John was talking earlier about how um, this is something the whole family can enjoy. What is it about dinosaurs that keeps kids and adults coming back for more? 
I have one take on this, having considered this at length of various books I've done, and I've written various kids' books about it and spoken to, you know, people of all ages, including kids a lot. There's something that's been missed about dinosaurs, and it's not that they're, we just like them because they're, you know, like symbolic monsters or they remind us of dragons. They are super animals. They're off the charts. Now, it's, it's absolutely normal for people throughout the whole of history, all cultures, People are enamored by animals. We're obsessed with animals. We adore big cats and sharks and the great whales and you know all these other amazing animals. And you know, if if you know anything about the natural world, you'll be part of this club. You know, we adore animals. I think inherently people get this about dinosaurs. They get the idea that wow, uh, a big crocodile or a, or a lion is a spectacular animal. But now compare it to Tyrannosaurus rex, which is a hundred times bigger. And has a skull the size of a person, an animal that's got its jaw muscles alone would weigh as much as a person. These animals are just off the charts. And I think, you know, kids often instinctively get that even they don't have to be staring at a skeleton in a museum, just reconstructions and toys depict this as well. I, I, I think I, we sorry, sorry, go on. finish, please. Oh, I, well, I, that's a good point to finish. I just think we inherently get the fact that they're just off the charts. They're super animals. They're amazing. I respectfully have a, 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 an alternative take on it based on my background. Um, again, I have been dealing with dinosaurs, uh, except with this group here, and, and, and Darren has a very deep understanding of it. But as a storyteller, I, I go to the, um, the monomyth and the mytho mythological aspects of it. There are certain things when you're designing creatures from scratch even that everybody continues to be drawn to. And I think just as you could take a cat that's never seen another animal and you could put it in a room with a mouse, it reacts in a certain way. And I think that our firmware has a deep, deep, deep understanding of predators that date back to when we were, you know, first standing upright in the fields. And the animals that we had to understand were predators and that was baked deeply into us to be afraid of. And it tends to be grouped into certain categories like birds and eagles or snakes or bears, things with teeth, things with claws, predators, apex predators that to our mid-level, you know, we were, we were not apex predators when we evolved and we have still inherited that hardware. You know, we just happen to develop larger brains and happen to really cooperate well. But other than that cooperation, we don't really stand a chance against most, most creatures out there. And so our nightmares are built of the same things that build our stories and the same thing that makes Stan Winston or Guillermo del Toro uh, develop new fantasy creatures. But they all seem to have those qualities that medieval dragons might or griffins. They're a mixture of snakes and bears and eagles. <laughs> and they're big and they can kill us. And I think that deep down, when you see a dinosaur for the first time as a child, and you see what it is, and you see those teeth, and you see that T-Rex in the museum, and you look up at it, it hits something deep in you, just for the same reason we're fascinated with lions and the big cats, because it's baked into us. And all of the stories that have developed over the years, this all predates. And so that's why you see, you know, uh, in the Arthurian stories, they're going after you know, you know, there uh, or, or or medieval 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 mythologies. There, it's slaying the dragon, it's the serpent, and these are serpent. You know, these are these are the perfect combinations of a kit bashed uh, 
super monster that would would inhabit your nightmares and so you become fascinated with them uh so i think that that's why that's why people jump to them immediately that just the and then the sense that these may have really existed and what would it be like if you co if you found yourself in proximity with them i think it's fascinating can i just add one anecdote that might just join both of those together just to finish off with my contribution was that so we talked about ages and how it appeals to people who are young and old. So Sir David Attenborough was 96 last week, last weekend. And um, when I told him we were going to do this project ages ago, he said, oh my God, this sounds amazing. I can't wait to see. This is going to be incredible. Partly for the reasons both of these, both John and Darren said. But then when we finally showed him the stuff and he was sitting in the dubbing theatre in the recording booth with his headphones on, recording the commentary, for the first, for the second episode, actually, and there's a scene where two T-Rex two, two are nuzzling each other in a sort of courtship display. And anyway, at the end of it, he takes his, mic, his headphones off, his glasses are all squeaked, and he's sort of peering over, and he's look, we're doing it by Zoom, and he looks and he says, Mike, it was as if I was there looking at them through a pair of binoculars. It's absolutely incredible. When can I see the next ones? <laughs> and I think for, for David to say that, who has seen everything, I mean, he's, he's the most traveled, most experienced natural history filmmaker, knowledgeable person in the world. For him to say that, we all said, I think we're doing okay. I think you definitely are. Uh, thank you, John, Mike, Tim, Darren, for being here with us today. We're all very excited to see Prehistoric Planets, this epic event, a uh, week-long event that premieres on Apple TV Plus on Monday, May 23rd. And it's just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, congratulations to all of you. Thank you so right. much. Ho Thank hopefully you. this is just the beginning because there's so yeah. there's, we're, we're having a, a blast doing it and and uh, there's so many more stories to tell. But this is the fun part when when people get to watch it and to see if we pulled we pulled off the magic trick here. Uh, Thank you for thanks for uh, these are great questions too. I just want to thank everybody who's watching. It, I, I, I really like it. I like this format too because you really get to see what the creative process was like. It's hard to answer the question, but you're kind of seeing how it all unfolds, and uh, and hopefully some of that enthusiasm and some of that joy will will translate to, uh, to to the screen as people are home watching it, and hopefully they get to experience some of what we have. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including black church studies, rural ministry, and pastoral care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, 
I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 